so my watch is not working properly. Uh, it's, a, it's a heart rate monitor and some other things. So earlier today, I noticed the heart rate monitor wasn't working. So um, I you know, went and got the manual and checked it out and did some things it said to do. So I got the heart rate monitor working. And uh, then I decided I'd get on the treadmill a little while before church. So I thought it was uh, 4.45 when I went down there to get on the treadmill. And I was going to, like 45 minutes, I thought I'd be back in the room. And then my, I just noticed, because I'd put it in my phone tonight in my calendar, and while I was on the treadmill, it popped up, and it was 5.45. I thought it was 5.15. And I thought, what? And I looked at my watch, and it said 5.15. So it's running 30 minutes behind. So I brought my phone, which I don't normally have it out here, but to, to make sure that I don't lose track of time and hold you 30 minutes longer than what we're supposed to do. At Quail Springs last Monday night, uh, I, they started at 6.30 also. Well, I normally, everything I do, it seems like, starts on the hour. So I'm, in, I'm a little more in practice because they did it at 6.30 also on Monday and Tuesday night. So I'm going, and I looked at my watch, and it said uh, 7, like 24. Well, in my mind, thinking about the hour, I'd only been going 24 minutes, but I'd actually been going almost an hour. And I thought, wow, I've got a lot of time tonight. So uh, I, I had more I could do, so I'm... I'm into, I'd done Psalm 22, which I'm getting ready to do, and then I had all this time, so I went right into the 23rd Psalm, and I was talking about that. But you know how you get the feeling that even though you're still going, they've quit? <laughs> so, uh, I don't know, it was like 6.40 or 7.40, so I was 10 minutes over, thinking I had 20 more minutes. And, I, and, and then it just hit me, I looked at my watch again, and it was working, this was just me misinterpreting it. And, um, and I realized, oh, I've been going an hour and ten minutes. So uh, I abruptly brought it to an end. <laughs> Probably gave them whiplash so quickly I just shut it down. The next night, I told them what I'd done the night before. They were like, well, we thought you quit rather abruptly. So I think I got, uh, I got a handle on it here. I'll check this. But if I get over an hour, somebody might signal. Paul, I'll, I, you, you could do that for me. Uh, like, uh, give me this, this sign. Okay, if you've got that handout, if you want to uh, sort of see where we are, the first two pages were introductory materials, which I covered all I want to do with that last night. Uh, and so now we're at the character of God and selected psalms, so we're to the actually looking at individual um, psalms. One a night for sure, maybe a little bit of time on a second. And uh, on the last night, uh, we'll, we'll do a little bit more. But Psalm 22 is where we're going to spend most of the time tonight. But the, the character trait about God, the thing about God that I want to emphasize tonight is that God is a God who suffers for us. We're going to hear that in Psalm 22. But also suffers with us in the darkness, in the dark places. And uh, that you can sort of see the 23rd Psalm. Uh, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. There's, there's the darkness there. Well, there's the darkness in Psalm 22 of the psalmist crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So there are two rather, rather dark scenes. And who is God in the darkness? He's a God who suffers for us. 
and he's a God who suffers with us. So we're going we're gonna to follow along there. On uh, That's page three. Well, I don't know if you numbered them. Do you have a number on your page? Okay, it's, is it front and back or just front? Okay, so uh, it'll be your second page then. Um, so the God who suffers for and with his people. So go ahead and open up to Psalm 22. The situation that's described here is, is much like the sermon yesterday morning, only uh, we do know this is David. We don't know what specifically the situation is in his life. There's no details about what it is. But it, it's obviously uh, not just a dark place. It's like one of the darkest places because he's crying out about God's abandoning him. God's not hearing his cries. God's not coming to his aid. So it's a bad situation that seems even more bleak because God doesn't seem to be present with him. And so it, these are the situations that everybody faces in this world. Now, for some people, uh, you may live a charmed life and not face any of these kind of really dark places until you start to get a little older in life. And, and you know, I had some things happen in my, my, my dad was an alcoholic, but my mother shielded me from a lot of that. And I don't remember that much about it, really. Um, I, I wouldn't see that as a dark place in my life. It was just, it was just something we learned to live with. I'm sure my, for my mother, it was a lot darker, a lot more difficult. Um, but I didn't face the death of anybody that was close to me. None of my family members had not real close, close family members suffered with any cancer or anything like that. Um, I was, it was much later in life. In fact, after I was OBU, the, the, the first real thing I faced in life where I had some feelings like this was my mother having a stroke. And I'm sure some of you all have face those kinds of things. Uh, so I was blessed. I was, I've been blessed in my life to not have to endure the amount of suffering I see some people having to endure. But, but since then, you know, as you get older, if you're blessed with a longer life, there's, there's definitely going to be more suffering because your loved ones will, you know, I've seen my parents now, my dad's in a nursing home. Um, last year, I, I'm sure I told you was that he'd been put in a nursing home it's been over a year uh, but he's not made any improvement in fact he's got, he's gotten worse he can't get out of bed now at all he can't get up on his own he can't walk uh, his his mind is it comes and goes I mean I, I went in there over Christmas and I'd we'd start talking he'd say something about just got back from Daytona Beach uh, this morning uh, with his brother Jay who's been dead for several years and so he'll he'll start telling you things like that, just way out there kinds of things, you know. Tell me, uh, this is interesting. This you talk about random. One of the days I was there, he said he'd been hunting, and he told me Sonny Pace was one of his old friends, and they're all dead. The people he named he'd been hunting with were all dead, and he said, "Man, we saw a good-looking woman out there too." He said, "She looked like Marilyn Monroe." <laughs> So I quickly moved the conversation in another direction, but, um, but just, you know, I just, really? really? Where were you hunting? You know, that, that kind of thing. It's not, it's not like, no, you couldn't have been hunting, Dad. No, it's not, it's, it's, it's not at that point. You just, you just go with it and let him, let him talk. And then he'll have these moments of lucidity where he's, I mean, he's remembering something that, yes, that's exactly what happened 30 years ago. And, 
and he knows all, who we all are, and he's asking the right questions. And so um, when, when you start in seeing these kinds of things, I mean, they're very difficult, and you can feel like you're in the pit. So when, you, when you're in those situations, it's interesting, those situations tend to either cause people to turn to God or cause people to turn away from God. It, it just, it's, it's almost inevitable that it will do one of the two when you find yourself in these kinds of situations in life where, where you feel like lamenting, where life has gone wrong, where you feel like you're in the darkness. And it, it's, not, it's not easy to know which way it'll turn an individual. But I've dealt with a lot of people who've abandoned the faith because of evil and suffering, and they couldn't justify a, a, the God that they believed in would allow such bad things to happen in the world or to them personally. And then I've had people turn to God in, in their suffering because they were looking for hope. And um, so it's that kind of situation. So let's, let's take a look at this psalm. It starts, the title is, For the Director of Music to the Tune of the Doe of the Morning. Wouldn't you like to hear the tune uh, of the, the Doe of the Morning? Uh, we have no idea what that tune was, but it's, it, apparently that was the tune to which this song might be sang. The title, The Doe of the Morning, I Have a Sense, is not like, you know, a a, a sort of a peaceful, ironic uh, picture of a, of a beautiful doe out in the woods. I think this is more a picture of a doe that's hunted. The doe of the morning would, would likely be a doe that's being hunted. And I think that bears it, itself out in the song itself. So I don't think the, mu- the tune to this psalm would be like a happy tune, like a doe prancing around in the morning. It's more more like... Someone who's being hunted. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. And so these first eight verses of this seem to be all about this cry of agony that the psalmist is expressing. And I don't have any reason to doubt it's David. I don't know what the situation in David's life. There certainly are situations we know about uh, from Scripture that would, would certainly qualify for David to feel this way. Uh, I mean, Saul's, Saul tries to kill him. Uh, he has the incident with Bathsheba. And all the fallout from that, including the baby that was born to he and Bathsheba and their adultery, dying as a judgment on what he had done. Uh, His own son Absalom uh, is trying to kill him so that he can be king. I mean, there are incidents in David's life that would certainly make sense if that's what he's enduring. We just can't know. But whatever it is, he's feeling God forsaken. So this is very much a cry of agony. 
And, and it starts with three parallel questions. And, and they're questions that reveal just the depth of his emotion. The first question is, why have you forsaken me to God? The second question is, why are you so far from saving me? And the third one is, why are you so far from my cries of anguish? Now, if we're looking for the parallelism, those are pretty close to synonymous parallel lines. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far away from me? Why are you not you know, so far from saving me? So I think those would qualify, really, as, as synonymous parallel lines, all expressing the depth of his God-forsakenness, feeling the absence of God. And all this reveals his rather personal pain. My God, I cry out day and night, but you don't answer. I find no rest. Now look at verse 3. What's, what's the first word there? Yet or but. Now what did we learn last night? What kind of parallelism is that? Antithetical. It, it shows a contrast. So this is what he's feeling. He's feeling God forsaken. He's feeling that God is far from him and that God is a, is a long way from saving him. All emphasizing the depth of his, of his emotion here. Yet, here's the contrast. So that's how he feels. But here's what he knows. You are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one that Israel praises. And I think it, it's interesting the first cry matches to this first statement about what he, what he knows is true about God. And the second matches the second. And then there's the third cry, why are you so far uh, from my cries of anguish, matches the third uh, that we find here in verse 5. So you, you look at them. So the first cry was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That sort of matches with, yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. So he feels that God has forsaken him, that's what he feels, and yet he knows that God is the one who's enthroned and the one that Israel praises. So you feel the tension in that? You have forsaken me, and yet you are the one that Israel praises. You're enthroned. The second cry was, why are you so far from saving me? Now look at verse 4. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted, and you saved them. So his his second cry was, why are you so far from saving me? But then you get down in the contrast, and what he, what he knows is true is that his ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, had cried out, and God had saved them. And yet he feels like God's a long way from saving him. And then the, the third cry is, why are you so far from my cries of anguish? Like, why do you not hear my cries? And then look down in verse 5. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. So I feel like you're not hearing my cries. That's what I feel. But what I know is Israel has cried out to you all going back to my ancestors. And you did hear them. And you did save them out of it. So he's feeling that tension that we often feel when we're in these dark places between what we feel and what we know. And so we can, we can make great confessions about what we believe about God, what we know to be true about God, and yet we might not be actually experiencing that at the moment. In, in the darkness, you might not feel like God is close, God is near. 
You might feel like God is far away from you. You might feel like even though you know God is there, you might feel like God's just not speaking to you. He's not hearing your prayers, and yet you know God hears your prayers. So what you know or what you believe is often in tension with what you're feeling or what you're experiencing at a given moment like this. And um, I, I think I, I really, this really resonates with me because I, I feel that tension in life between what I know and what I believe and what I'm actually feeling in a, in a given circumstance. So that's his personal agony that you see, this cry of agony. And that, that's a beautiful expression, although sad, uh, of his personal pain. Now, at 6, 7, and 8, it's still this cry of agony, but now it's more the public spectacle that he feels like he's become. But, that's in contrast to all these claims he can make about God and who he is, but, that's who, you are that God, but, I'm a worm. I feel like a worm. I feel like I'm not even part of the human species. That's how, that's how low he feels. I don't even feel human. I feel subhuman. And if you're looking for subhuman, worm is pretty low. And uh, when I, th- I don't know what worm you think about, but I think of those slugs, you know. I think that's what we call them in Kentucky. I don't know what you call them in Oklahoma. I'm not seen, don't see too many of them these days, but they're like kind of little fat, roly-poly worms. Not, not, not roly-polies, though. Those are furry. These had two little tentacles, and if you put, like, salt on them, they would just writhe in pain. You, that's a slug, right? You, you do know slugs in Oklahoma. Yeah. So if I were trying to say, man, I don't even feel, I feel subhuman, I'd say I feel like a slug. And uh, he doesn't specify what kind of worm, but that's what I picture. But he feels like he's, he's not even human. That's how, that's how bad the situation is. I feel like a worm. I'm not a man, I'm a worm. Scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. Now, uh, it, it doesn't explain, but this is something you hear repeatedly in Psalms about people who are hurling insults or mocking, shake their heads. So in, in my mind, I don't know what that looks like in ancient Israel, but I know what it looks like, you know, on the schoolyard in elementary school. It's like, nah, 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 nah. And you can't do that without shaking your head. You can't say nah, 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 nah without shaking your head a little bit. And uh, I, I, the kids would know that better than, you know, you older folks who don't do nah, 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 nah anymore. I guess nobody does, but you, you maybe remember it. But it, it's, it, it's, it adds to the scorn, to the insult, the shaking the head. It's, it's more of the taunting. So this is a very public spec. He's, he's not just suffering on his own. He's feeling um, that, that the community is just heaping more pain on him. And here's what they say. He trusts in the Lord, so let the Lord rescue him out of whatever this trial is that he's going through. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. And so what they're saying is something's wrong here. Either something's wrong with his faith or something's wrong with his God. Because he's in a terrible situation, so either he's done something or his God's not able to do something. But 
It's the kind of taunts that an ancient Israelite might experience. And you, you see it in the book of Job. You see Job's friends basically saying the same thing to him. You must have done something, because we know God's capable, but um, it's one or the other. And uh, so, so this is what, he, here's his cry. This is the darkness he's in. And so the next section, 9 through 11, is, I'm, I'm using cry throughout this, because I think that's, that's the appropriate term. So 1 through 8 is more the cry of agony. Here's his cry for help. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you from my mother's womb. You've been my God. So this sounds a little more positive. Again, we're seeing the tension between what he feels and what he knows. As he thinks about it, he says, you know, I realize that you gave me life. And that you sustained me even as an infant through milk from my mother. And I believe you've got a plan for me. So, I, so that's what I believe. And so in the midst of that, then, here's this cry, Do not be far from me. That's going to be the other cry. You go down to verse 19, there's another cry for help. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. That's the one thing he really asks for. God's presence. I'm sure he wants to be delivered out of the pit. I'm sure he wants the suffering to end. I'm sure he wants the taunting and the scorn and the mocking to end. But what he wants more than anything else is to know God's presence. The presence of God, even in the pit, even in the darkness, he knows he can survive it. But he, but he doesn't feel God's presence. So he's asking, do not be far from me. Remember the first three cries. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from hearing me? Why are you so far from saving me? So do not be far from me. Now this is Psalm 22. I want to take a quick look at Psalm 73. And I started to do this last night, but I was running a little behind, so I thought I'd throw it in here tonight. Psalm 73 is the beginning of book 3. And it's a, it's a beautiful lament uh, that, that turns a little more positive than maybe... Um, some of the other ones that we've seen. But this is a psalm of Asaph, uh, who was a Levite singer in David's court. And, and he's struggling with life. And part of his struggle is he sees the wicked doing so well in life and the righteous suffering. And he just can't figure out how that could be so. So you start, he says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he goes on. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're plagued by no human ills. How can that be right? How can that, how's that justice? So, so that's his lament. He sees that things aren't just. Things aren't fair. The wicked, the wicked get by off, you know, they're doing great. And the righteous seem to be suffering. But I don't want to do this whole psalm. But things take a turn at verse 17. And, and I think this is a, the crux of this psalm and really sort of a turning point in the psalms as a whole. I'll start at verse 15. 
If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God, and then I understood their final destiny. So at, at that moment, in the sanctuary of God, where he would experience the presence of God, it made sense to him. He caught a glimpse of the end of the wicked. And no matter how well things might go for them at the moment, that's a short period of time compared to the eternity. But the turning point was, till I entered the sanctuary of God. The whole, that's a phrase that points to he had an experience with God. He experienced God in the sanctuary and things made sense suddenly. That's what the psalmist in 22 is crying out for. Do not be far from me. Let me know your presence. Now here's the interesting thing and part of why I point into Psalm 73. After this, Psalm 73, the lament psalms start to really tail off. The vast majority of the 60 plus laments are prior to 73 and 73 is one of them. But there's just a handful of laments after Psalm 73. It's like it's a turning point here. And this Psalm 73 at the beginning of book 3, I think right in the center of that, this expression of till I, till I entered the sanctuary of God and then, I, and then I came to terms with things. And it seems like the Psalms as a whole from that point on start to make that move towards praise and thanksgiving. But in any event, I, I just say that because twice he, his cry here for help is do not be far from me. That seems to be what repeatedly the psalmist is asking for. Yes, the psalmist would love for the darkness to go away, from the waters to stop rising, from somebody to pull them out of the pit. But more than that, do not be far from me. Don't let me feel your absence in my suffering. So, it, so it's, that's the cry. So verse 11, do not be far from me for trouble is near. And there is no one to help. Now, verses 12 through 18 is the expression of uh, the cry of enemy siege. That's how I finally fra framed it. But he, he, he's crying out because he feels like his enemies are just surrounding him. And, and he feels fear. Uh, and at the same time, he's feeling um, skin and bones. He's feeling uh, like he's washed out and dried up. And he's fearful. And, and here's how he describes this enemy siege that he's under. Many bulls surround me. And not just any bulls. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. You might, you might hear something echo of uh, Amos 4.1 where he talks about the cows of Bashan. He refers to women uh, as the cows of Bashan. And that's because they were known for their large and fat livestock. And so, you know, if you really wanted to take a shot at the women, you call them cows of Bashan. You call them fat cows. Now, that's Amos. That's not what the psalmist is doing here. But just to say these bulls from Bashan, it would be not just any bulls, you know, not some dried up skinny bull, but large, fat, terrifying kind of animal. Roaring lions, they tear their prey. They open their mouths wide against me. 
Um, so you've got um, an, an ox or a, a bull that could gore him. You've got a roaring lion whose mouth is open wide. And you know, he's already talked about the taunts, the mocking, that the, they're hurling insults at him. Uh, I, I get a sense that uh, obviously there's not a literal roaring lion scaring him. These are his enemies. But I, I think that's a good picture of slander and taunting and mocking, you know, this, this lion who wants to tear you apart and he opens his mouth wide. Uh, I think that, that may uh, be picturing the slander and taunts that he's experiencing. And then I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. It's melted within me. My mouth is dried up like pieces of pottery that are broken. Um, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. So here he describes some of the physical uh, pain or suffering he might be going through. Or I feel like, I feel like all the water's just, you know, been drained out of my body. I'm all poured out. Bones out of joint. Heart melted. Mouth dry. And then more animals, 16. Dogs surround me. Now these aren't cute puppies. These aren't, uh, you know, uh, I don't know. We've got King Charles we got two King Charles Cavalier, you know, they're about that tall, and they look like little Cocker Spaniels, and they're really cute, you know. We, we're, we're, we kind of probably care too much about them, but it's not those kind of dogs. These are vicious um, dogs that would rip, you know, just tear you apart. And they scavenger dogs. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. So this is the way his suffering is going. He's just surrounded by enemies that he pictures as these vicious animals who want to destroy him. And what's he feel like? That's what his enemies feel like. They're like bulls and lions and dogs. And, and how's he feel? I'm a worm. And then uh, 19 through 21 he is the second cry for help, but it's the same cry. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword. My precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. So he's, he's added another animal there, an oxen. It was a bull earlier, but still the horn. So that's sort of the end of the agony. That's the experience he's having. Now verse 22 takes a rather sharp turn. Now there's an exp expression, a declaration of praise for God's deliverance. He says, I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him, revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Now wait a minute, where did this psalm begin? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's he say now when he gets to verse 24? In a sense, well, I was wrong. You hadn't forsaken me. 
You did hear my cry. You did not hide your face from me, but you listened to the cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise Him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before Him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and He rules over nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before Him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive... Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim the righteousness, declaring his righteousness, declaring to a people not even yet born, it is done. You could translate it, uh, he has done it, but you could also translate it, uh, it, uh, it is done. And, and so, you know, I told you to look for Jesus in the in the psalm and then you get to this latter section you think well nothing like this happened in david's rule nothing like this about all the families of the nations bowing down before him dominion belongs to the lord he rules over the nations i mean you can't find anything in david's life that would match that and i'm i'm absolutely confident that this looks ahead to the one who will sit on david's throne the coming messiah the davidic king and his he's talking about his kingdom so, man, we got to praise in Psalm 22. But it didn't start out with praise. It started out in deep and dark lament. So now, as you're hearing me go through that, we've now, we've now done all the, all the get down into the weeds and talk about what's going on in the psalm. What are you thinking about as I'm going through this? Are you, are you asking what was David going through that would cause him to be so, feel so far from God and like God had, wasn't hearing him and God wasn't near to him? Were you, were you thinking about David as I was reading that psalm? Maybe in some of it, maybe to some degree. That would be just purely historically looking at it and asking, you know, what was the author's intent here? What, who, what was David enduring? I think we should do that. I've tried to do that. And I've said we don't know the specific situation, but I do believe this, hap- this was a cry that reflected David's experience at this point in time. So you may or may not have been thinking much about David. Did you ever think about yourself as I was reading through it? Did you remember a time when you felt like that? When you felt like God was not near? When you felt like your prayers weren't getting above the ceiling? When, when life, you thought it can't get worse, and it got worse. And uh, it may have been marital problems. It may have been struggles with your children. It might have been an awful situation at work. It might have, your business may have been in collapse. Um, it may have been illness that you were suffering. It may have been... Uh, something that somebody close to you was going through and you just thought, well, this just can't get worse. And it got worse. And, and you're thinking about your own experience, maybe? That'd be appropriate. I mean, I think that's why they're here. And, um, and, and on, on the one hand, maybe you can be thankful that God brought you up out of that. Maybe you're at the, you know, the latter part stage of it. But you might be in the early phase of it here tonight. And like I said, you wouldn't tell me if you were. You'd smile and 
tell me you were doing just fine tonight. So you could think of David, you could think of yourself. Did any of you think about somebody in between David and you? Well, you might have thought about Job, but this... Yeah. Divide his clothes. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you're picking up on what I what I hoped that you would. You've got clearly twenty two one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You you don't even have to try to make that connection. Jesus actually says that both in Matthew and Mark's account, Matthew twenty seven, Mark fifteen. So that ties this to Jesus. So this is the kind of darkness. That we see, you remember when Jesus is hanging on the cross between 12 and 3, it is literally dark. Right? His cry is a cry in the darkness. Tied directly to this cry in the darkness. And, and I think it's worth thinking about that, the darkness there as Jesus cries out these words. When, he, when the whole creation has darkened. And it, and it wasn't just that somebody turned the light off there at the place of execution. There was darkness all around. It was dark everywhere, at least in that part of the world. I don't know how, widely the, how wide the darkness was, but it certainly was more than just on the spot where Jesus was dying. There was darkness in the creation. And think back to uh, the creation account, Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens of the earth. Well, how does Genesis describe, just before God says, let there be light, how does he describe things? The, the earth was empty and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. Now that's a picture of chaos. There was no order to the creation. And what does God say? Let there be light which brings order to the creation and, and removes the darkness. Let there be light. Well, what happens when there goes from at the, in the day when there should be light and it becomes dark? It's like a reversal of creation. It's like the, cre, it's like the creation is caving in on itself again. It's going back into chaos. I think that's the point of the darkness at the crucifixion of Jesus. It's saying this is not just an individual Jew who's dying. This is cosmic. What's happening here affects the entire creation. It's that big. And in that literal darkness, he cries out the, the words of Psalm 22.1. Is, is it an overreaction? Is he overreacting to his circumstances to, for his mind to be drawn to Psalm 22.1? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me in that moment? You know about crucifixion. I mean, um, I know you've been to enough Good Friday uh, services or Easter Sunday when they still talk about crucifixion or some other time of the year or in a Sunday school class. You know, even though you've never seen a crucifixion, you know what it is. And you know the whole point of it was pain, agony, and humiliation. One of the earliest expressions of it that we know as far as the Romans go is like 71 B.C. 
there was a slave revolt led by a gladiator, slave gladiator, named Spartacus. Now, not a lot of folks know about Spartacus unless you saw the, like, 1960 Kirk Douglas film where he plays Spartacus. And I can't remember seeing it. I know I've seen parts of it, but I don't remember how true to history it is. But it's probably the only exposure most people have had to that slave's revolt. But it was a three-year slave rebellion led by Spartacus. And the Romans finally put it down. And by the end, they had, uh, they had taken 6,000 slaves, revolting slaves, um, captive. They put them, caught them. And they executed all 6,000 of them on crosses that lined like a 120-mile stretch of the Apian Way, which is, uh, one, was one of the main, it was like I-40. It was one of the main travel routes in ancient Rome. They lined, it would be like lining the interstate with crosses, 6,000 approximately of them. And they just left their body. They, they didn't take their bodies down. They just left them there um, for as long as there was any flesh left there. Now, why, why, did, why these slaves treated that way? Why in that location where it could be so visible... As a deterrent, this was to say, if you mess with Rome, this is what will happen to you. And don't you think they would even encourage mocking and taunting of those who were executed? That's the whole point. So think about crucifixion and, and, and the first there's the psychological torment of it. And we don't see a lot of that. In the Gospels, they don't focus so much on the, on the psychological torment, but you do get some of the taunting. Like, let God save him, or let him take himself down off the cross. Um, they do mock him. We see some of that. But we don't see the full force of it. And um, what, what the Gospels don't relay to us, but what we do know happened, if you had a Jewish man who's being treated like the Romans are treating him, basically for insurrection. That's, uh, he, he's, he's telling people not, the, the charge was, he, wasn't, he, wasn't, he was telling people not to pay their taxes and trying to stir up revolt. So they're going to want to humiliate him. He's a Jewish man. He's naked. Uh, you can bet there were taunts, sexual taunts. I mean, that'd just be part of the deal. It'd be all sorts of taunt, but we don't think much about that part of it. But just the psychological torture of it would be far more uh, than what the Gospels relate to us. And in the same way, the physical torture of it, the Gospels just don't really get into that. It's like there's a big buildup to it, and then it's just a few verses that describe it. They don't, and if you've seen the movie The Passion of the Christ... You know, the Mel Gibson film from, I don't know, 15 or 20 years ago. Well, you come out of that and you're just wrung out because the physical suffering is so pronounced. I mean, just the beating that they give Jesus in that, in that film would just, just completely exhaust you. The Gospels have like one verse. And they, and they scourged him. But if you knew anything about this when you were hearing the Gospels read in 60 or 70 or 80 or 90, you knew exactly what that meant. It was awful. And, and the, 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 there's the, 
the whip that has the leather strips and then the bone or metal and, and they would strip you naked and hang you on a pole and they they just start beating you. And they were lictors, they were called, were professional men in the Roman uh, military who did the beatings. They knew how to do it. They were professionals. So first the flesh is ripped off and then they get down into the muscle tissue. And you can imagine how painful that would be, but it's also a bloody affair. Then when they beat you almost to the point of death, now you've got to carry the cross piece where, that you're going to be executed on. They'll parade you to the place where you're going to die because the beating doesn't happen in the place where the vertical beams are put in the ground. You don't, Jesus wouldn't have carried the full cross. He'd just carry the cross piece. The vertical piece would be in the ground at the place, you know, in a very, not on a hill far away, but in a very public spot. So now he's got to carry the cross piece, which he probably could have carried with no problem except for the beating that he's taken and the abuse he's been going through for hours all night. That's why he would likely need help carrying it. But then they get you there and they nail you there on that wood wooden beam not in the not here but here we know that from archaeological finds of people who'd been executed not that many but enough to know it was there so they lay you down where your back had been laid open just lay you down in the dirt on that and then nail you to that piece and then lift you up nailed to that cross piece and then you that piece would then fall down into the slot for it on the vertical piece and that you can imagine the agony of all this. And then there's that's just getting you to the place of execution, of crucifixion. And at that point, now the person who's being crucified really becomes their own executioner because what finally is the most likely cause of death for people executed was asphyxiation. And it's the weight of your own body that causes you to not be willing after a while to lift up and get air. Your arms just can't continue to do that, nailed to a cross, and you can't push up with your feet. It just you can't keep that up. So instead of inhaling, exhaling, you're gasping and heaving. And you could bleed to death. You could, I guess, die of shock. But more likely, you're going to, the weight of your own body is going to cause you to die of asphyxiation. So does he overreact when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't think so. That'd seem a, if you're ever going to say that, Psalm 22, 1, that'd be the spot to do it. Now, that would be for anybody enduring that, but you have to then remember, so that's just the nuts and bolts of crucifixion. Why is he doing it? Because we got this big problem. Sin, disobedience. We've got all these problems in the world. And, there, and most of them aren't new problems. I mean, you know, maybe COVID is a, is a different branch of a new problem, but, we, you know, we've had Spanish flu. We've had other pandemics in the world. Black plague. Our, we got lots of problems. But our biggest problem is not a lack of education. It's not a pandemic. It's not racism. It's not abortion. These are all problems. Those are all consequences of the problem. And the problem is 
Human beings are in rebellion against God. That's the problem. And all the other problems grow out of that problem. So, so we had this terrible problem because we disobeyed God. You know, thank you, Adam and Eve. But we can't just point the finger at them. We've taken a bite of the apple too, or whatever fruit it was. And so, why is he doing it? Because, on the one hand, God just couldn't look, look the other way. He couldn't say, these people, that, these human beings that I created in my image are just really unruly, and I don't know what to do with them, so I'll just ignore their sin. He just couldn't look the other way, because God's holy. And His holiness would not allow Him to just ignore our sin. So that's off the table. Another good option would have been annihilation, which he almost does. You know, Genesis 10, 11, uh, you got the Genesis flood. He just about wipes the whole human creation out. Almost starts over, but he doesn't. And what keeps him from just annihilating all all these people created in the image of God? Well, God is love. And so, I'm not going to say God was in a bind, but from my, where I sit and look at it, there is this tension between God's holiness and God's love, but God has an answer to it. He will himself provide the sacrifice in the person of his son. So this one who knew no sin became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him who knew no sin to become sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Galatians 3.10, Paul says it again there. This one who was not cursed became cursed. And he quotes Deuteronomy 21.23, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. For us. He took our curse. So that's why. He's doing it. And now, we, that, I'm sure this is not a lot of new ground, but it's worth thinking about then when Jesus cries, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so how we make sense of that? What's Jesus really crying out? What's he suggesting here when, he's, when he quotes this psalm? Going back to, I guess, like 1986. Thinks that that's when I read John Stott's book, The Cross of Christ, which is a great book about atonement, death of Jesus, the cross of Christ. And he made this compelling argument about Jesus bearing our sin. And at the moment when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was God turning his back, turning away from him. He couldn't look upon Jesus because Jesus was becoming sin. And yeah, I thought, yes. You know, that just gives such depth and richness to, the, to what Jesus is doing and the, the agony he's experiencing there. That's God turning away from him. And I've taught students that for at least 10 years. But now I've been there 24, fin- finished 20, finishing 24, and I've changed my mind about that. And the reason I changed my mind about that is because I read Psalm 22. 
not just verse 1, the whole Psalm 22. And my belief that when Jesus quotes Psalm 22, 1, he's not just quoting verse 1, it invokes the whole Psalm. It is a, it is a place where you, he feels abandoned. It is a place where he's bearing our sin. But has God turned his back? And, and the more you think about that, what would that suggest about the Trinity? Could one, three and one, and for them to be one, in my understanding of what oneness would mean, you couldn't have one member of the Trinity turning their back on another member of the Trinity. Or do you want to suggest that kind of break within the Trinity, the unity of the three, Father, Son, and Spirit? I, that makes me real nervous. And you don't need God turning the back uh, for any other reason that he cries, Psalm 22, 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We, we wouldn't even suggest that God had turned his back on Jesus there, except for he quotes Psalm 22, 1. But is that what Psalm 22 seems to be saying? Now, if you look in the notes that I provided for you, you see the eight dots. I think there's eight of them there. That's just to suggest what you were suggesting a moment ago, that there's more here than just the Psalm 22 1. If you're really thinking about Jesus' crucifixion scene while you read Psalm 22, and I intentionally didn't point out anything, there's a repeat, there are repeated references to things that sure look like that, that this is the scene of Jesus' crucifixion. That's caused several scholars to refer to Psalm 22 as the fifth gospel account of the crucifixion. So I've listed there the things that I would point to. So I've got my place marked here at Matthew 27. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flip back and forth. So at verse seven, so we got Psalm 22.1. We know that one, right? Jesus says that at, at uh, Matthew 27.46. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But there's more. Verse 7. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. Look at Matthew 27. It might help you to mark your place there. And then at verse 38. So Matthew 27, 38. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads. Now how similar is that uh, to the, to, uh, the uh, verse 7 here in Psalm 22? Then verse 8. He trusts in the Lord. They say... Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Look at, again, 27, verse 43. Here's what they say when Jesus is on the cross. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I'm the son of God. But that cry, let God rescue him if he believes in him. Then uh, go down to verse... 18, oh, uh, not 18, 14, in Psalm 22. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. I'm poured out like water. Do you remember a scene related to Jesus' crucifixion where water literally pours out of his body? In John 19, they spear him in the side, and what comes out? Water and blood. I am poured out like water. And then verse 15, my mouth is dried up like, a, like pieces of broken pottery. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. What's that a picture of? 
thirst. Isn't that a pretty description, pretty accurate or apt description of someone who's just dying for water? John nineteen twenty eight. I thirst. Jesus cries. Another cry from the cross looks like it's contained here. And then verse 16, dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and feet. You made reference to that one. That's exactly what they did to Jesus. They nailed him hands and feet. Remember in St. John's account when Thomas misses Jesus' appearance to them, he you know, bad time to go for lunch. He, Jesus appears to the ten, because they're down to eleven now, minus Judas. And, and then he shows back up, and they're like, man, you missed it. Jesus was here. And he's like, I don't believe you. And then we call him Doubting Thomas. But G, Jesus ends up showing up to him. But how does he confirm to him who it is? By the, by the scars. In the hands and feet and side. And then, verse 18 They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. They divide my clothes and cast lots for my garment. That's what the psalmist says. And then you look at 2735. When they crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And then at the end of this Psalm 22, how did it end? It is done. One Hebrew word. Now, you could translate it, he has done it, but it's just one Hebrew word. What's the last saying of the cross? It is done. One Greek word, tetelestai. I don't know the Hebrew word, I'm not looking at it, but it's one Hebrew word. Now, what does that suggest? There's more here than just Psalm 22.1. The whole psalm should be invoked when we're looking at the crucifixion of Jesus. I do not believe it's possible for there to be the kind of rift in the Trinity that we suggest when we say the Father turned His back on the Son. And to be honest with you, that gives me a lot of troubles as a father. I cannot imagine the scenario where I would abandon one of my children in their suffering. But that's what we got God doing to his son. But what, I'm looking for another way to express it. What makes it certain for me is the verse 24. He has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him. He may have felt like he was abandoned. But God had not abandoned him. He he comes to that conclusion here in verse 24. Shouldn't we carry that over too to Jesus' cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And for me, that answers a lot of other problems that raises about the Trinity. And then, what kind of father? So step back from it. That's all pretty heavy stuff Um, but finally I want to say something about what's this mean for us in the darkness when we feel like our lives are coming apart and creation is collapsing in on itself and you can have experience in life where it feels like that even then 
you can know that God is a God who suffered for us. That's what Jesus was doing when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was suffering for us in our place. He is God. You can know that God has suffered for us. And there's a great little book, and I may have, you know, I've been coming here so long, I'm sure I've told the same story more than once, but it's a little book by Elie Wiesel, and the title of it is Night. And he's a survivor of the Holocaust, and it's a very moving book, and you can read it in in a few sittings. It wouldn't take you very long. It'd be worth your time. And it'll put you in a mood. It's not, not really an uplifting read. It's hard to read like anything related to the Holocaust. But he tells the story of being taken into the courtyard with the other Jews. And as they were brought out there, they could see there were three nooses with chairs under them. So they knew three of their fellow Jews were going to be hanged. And so when they brought the three out who were going to be hanged, Two of them were adult men, but one of them was a young boy, eight to ten years old. So they put the nooses around their necks, kicked the chairs out from under them, and the two men died quickly. They were heavier, their necks snapped, they died relatively fast, but the boy was too light. And he suffered there for, Vazel says, what felt like 30 minutes. And they're just forced to watch. And some, one of his fellow Israelites there watching says something like, Where is God now? And Vazel says, He heard that voice, but he heard another voice within himself that said, He's here, suffering on these gallows. Now, Vizel doesn't explain exactly what he means by that, so I've got to interpret it. Here's what I want it to mean. That that boy wasn't suffering alone. That God was there with him. God suffers for us, but God also suffers with us. He does not abandon us in our suffering. He did not abandon his son. He will not abandon you. That's the good news of Psalm 22. So you think about those things. And as I, my watch is saying 7, which means it's 7.30 or 7.34. So uh, I think uh, I'll not get on to the next psalm. But that's okay. Whatever I get to every night. Tomorrow night, we'll go now to the God who forgives God's unfailing love, Psalm 32 and 51. We'll actually get both of those psalms. But uh, I'm going to actually just ask a prayer for us tonight, and then we'll be dismissed. Our Father, we all know that there's a great deal of darkness in our world, and that suffering is waiting out there for us, if not tonight, if not Next week, if not this year, it's out there. Father, I pray for myself and for every one of these people who gathered here tonight. That when they find themselves in the darkness, when they feel abandoned, when they feel like their prayers 
aren't getting through, when they feel all alone, that they would remember Psalm 22 and that they would know that you are suffering with them. Father, I pray that we would be even more grateful for the salvation you've given us when we think about what Jesus endured for us. And we are grateful that you are a God who suffered for us. For I pray it in the name of Jesus, who was crucified and on the third day raised. Amen. I'll see you tomorrow night.